Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Incoming House Republicans plan to tackle everything from border security to handling China. We'll bring you their proposed legislation. General Motors says it donated to the Rainbow Library Program of the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network last year. The program provides LGBT-affirming books to schools and libraries for free. A major development in the Idaho murders case, a suspect has been arrested. He's set to have a quick return to Idaho to face charges in connection to the quadruple homicide. We'll bring you analysis. We take a look at the V-Safe COVID vaccine safety monitoring system. An attorney for those allegedly injured by the vaccine says it has some surprising numbers and omissions. We have an update on the brutal murders of four University of Idaho students. A graduate student at Washington State University named Brian Koberger was arrested in his home state of Pennsylvania on Friday. We hear from a law enforcement veteran for analysis on the prosecution that lies ahead and the investigation that led to his arrest. Joining us now to discuss is Mark Ruskin, a retired FBI special agent and former assistant district attorney in Brooklyn, New York. Great having you back on the show, Mark. Thanks for having me, Kevin, and uh, Happy New Year to you. Yes, you as well. The 28-year-old male suspect of the Idaho College murders has waived his extradition hearing, according to his lawyer. This will speed up his return to Idaho, where he faces four counts of first-degree murder. Can you outline what the prosecution and defense have to do at this point? Well, at this point, uh, the first step is going to be to transport him jurisdictionally, legally, into, uh, back to Idaho. You know, through the process, he's waiving extradition, so it's going to be fairly expeditious. He is, so he'll be transferred back to uh, Moscow, Idaho, where he will no doubt be indicted on the four charges of uh, first-degree murder, first-degree murder involving uh, aggravating circumstances as there are in this case. Obviously, he's presumed innocent until proven guilty, but the fact that there's more than one murder, that is, uh, multiple murders in uh, end of itself is an aggravating circumstances. Also, the particularly heinous acts, and here also with the knife uh, utilization of, of uh, extreme violence, that also could uh, justify first-degree murder. So that, that would not be a difficult threshold to reach, I believe, in this case. There's definitely extreme violence in this case. Sources told Fox News that authorities used DNA evidence to track the suspect in his vehicle. Moscow police were criticized for how long it took investigators to locate a person of interest. It was about a month and a half. Can you comment on the time frame here and any difficulties investigators may face along the way? I would think there would have been a, a great number of difficulties, including uh, identifying a suspect at the early at the outset. So better to take the case in a and, and handle it in a very meticulous and careful manner and come up with a strong, you know, bulletproof case than to rush to judgment. And in the old days, perhaps sometimes that would happen uh, with, you know, some aid, local agencies or even federal agencies is to try and find anybody. But here you want to find the right person and go through the t- reams and tons of data which may have been needed to uh, be examined to identify the vehicle and identify the suspect. Sooner is definitely better, but being correct is very important. Now, the suspect was wearing a suicide prevention vest. They're supposed to ensure warmth and comfort while not being able to be turned into a weapon or something used for self-strangulation. Can you comment on this? 
But I, in this case, clearly the authorities are going to err on the side of caution. So better to have a live suspect, whether or not he ends up being the correct individual who committed these acts, than to have a, a dead one uh, on one's hands and a lot of criticism. So I think they were just erring on the side of caution here. And Mark, what do you think of how just how this whole case is playing out as a whole, and what should the American people be looking for? Uh, we've, I've seen that the apparently FBI special operations teams were surveying the home of the uh, suspect for days prior to the uh, to the arrest. So there's been a lot, and a lot is going to come out here in terms of how uh, he was ultimately tracked down. What is his state of mind? I mean, is he insane? It seems like he may be insane uh, as a, to me. I mean, this is something he planned for a long time as a kind of serial murder type of act, perhaps. So it's going to unravel, and it's going to be uh, macabre for sure, but also fascinating. The motive, his mental state, like you mentioned, these are all going to be factors. Mark Ruskin, retired FBI special agent, thank you so much for your analysis. Thank you for inviting me, Kevin. According to the CDC's COVID-19 vaccine safety system called VSAFE, nearly 8% of participants reported needing medical care during the monitored period. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on that. It took two lawsuits and over a year before the CDC agreed to release data from its VSAFE program. The VSAFE system was designed to assess the safety of the COVID-19 vaccine. It has over 10 million individuals that use the system who do periodic health check-ins. Attorney Aaron Seary says VSAFE is superior to VERS because it's able to calculate a rate for adverse events. If 200,000 people report to VSAFE that they have myocarditis and there are 10 million people, you can figure out a 2% rate of myocarditis. VSAFE also has a much higher participation rate than a clinical trial. The clinical trial for Pfizer had 30,000 participants compared to VSAFE's 10 million. Moreover, Siri points out that the data from VSAFE has not been filtered through any pharmaceutical company. And just like a clinical trial, VSAFE relies on asking participants to provide information about their experience after the shot. VSAFE gathers data from two categories, symptoms and health impact. Users can report symptoms in a check-the-box manner, things like fever, chills, pain, but some symptoms are missing. Pericarditis, myocarditis, transverse myelitis. So why the omission? One could theorize that the CDC didn't know that the vaccine could cause these issues when it rolled out VSAFE in December 2020. But that's not the case. In October 2020, the CDC gave a presentation where it lists adverse events of special interest. That list included pericarditis, myocarditis, transverse myelitis, and seizures. But the CDC did not include these items which it knew were of special interest. The second VSAFE category is health impact. Users reported data every week for the first six weeks and then at week 12, 24, and 52. The check-the-box options included being unable to work or unable to do normal daily activities and whether health care was required. Siri sees one of VSAFE's biggest faults here. You would imagine they would have set a threshold above which they would have said, okay, we got to pull the plug on the shot. Whether that be 1 in 500 or 1 in 100 needing medical attention, about 800,000 people out of around 10 million people in VSAFE required medical care. 7.7%, that is 1 in 13 people. 
yet the CDC did not pull the shot. 25% of those people needed emergency room care or uh, were hospitalized and another 40% sought urgent care. Siri says that the CDC previously only published information about the medical care rate in the first week after vaccination, which was around 0.3%. Meanwhile, the backlog of claims by people who alleged they've been injured from the COVID-19 vaccine rose from 2,300 a year ago to now more than 7,500. The CDC maintains that COVID-19 vaccines are safe and effective. The vSafe data was collected for up to a year after vaccination. The reported health issues may or may not have been the result of the COVID vaccination. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Dr. Anthony Fauci was slated to step down from heading the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases by December 31st, but the agency has not officially confirmed his resignation. Earlier this year, both Fauci and the agency said that he would be stepping down from his federal positions. As of Sunday, the agency's website still listed Fauci as the director of the agency. In a statement, Fauci said after more than 50 years of government service, he plans to pursue the next phase of his career and still has energy and passion for his field. Fauci took over the agency in 1984 under the Reagan administration. Before that, he worked in various positions in the federal government since the 1960s. Nurses in New York City are planning a strike. A union representing nurses at eight hospitals just gave 10 days notice. Its 16,000 workers are set to strike if both sides can't work out a new contract. The nurses are demanding better pay and working conditions. We need to have enough nurses to care for our patients. You cannot have a nurse working in a medical surgical unit where she should have five nurses, five patients, and that nurse is taking care of 12 patients. There are nurses in the emergency room that are caring for 20 patients. The union says it will keep bargaining between now and January 9th when the strike is planned. The nurses are urging hospitals to invest in hiring and take steps to retain nurses. One hospital group, New York Presbyterian, says it hopes to reach a fair and reasonable contract with its nurses. House Republicans have revealed their rules package for the upcoming Congress. It formalizes the concessions Representative Kevin McCarthy has agreed to in his bid for House Speaker. According to the new rules, only five Republicans are needed to call a vote to oust the sitting Speaker. It also restores the ability to zero out a government official's salary, gives the lawmakers 72 hours to read a bill before it comes to the floor, and creates a new select committee to investigate the so-called weaponization of the Justice Department and FBI. Republicans are keeping the discharge petitions, which allows lawmakers to force a bill to the floor if 218 lawmakers support it. The new rules also prohibit remote hearings and staff unionization efforts. The rules still have to be adopted by the House once it selects a speaker. Republicans are set to take over the House tomorrow. The incoming House Majority Leader revealed over 10 legislative proposals that he will bring up for consideration. Here's an overview of some of them. In a letter to his GOP colleagues, incoming House Majority Leader Steve Scalise of Louisiana listed eight bills and three resolutions that he would be scheduling for Republicans to take up in their first two weeks of work after the 118th Congress begins at noon on Tuesday. He says voters have made their desire for change clear in the midterms. Scalise noted frustration with soaring inflation, the rise in violent crime, and the crisis of illegal immigration. The first bill, dubbed the Family and Small Business Taxpayer Protection Act, aims to revoke some of the additional IRS funding for 87,000 new agents, which Democrats pass as part of their Inflation Reduction Act. Getting tougher on China is another immediate action item for the House GOP. 
with a resolution that seeks to establish a bipartisan committee on the competition between the U.S. and China. Numerous Democrats have reportedly shown interest in joining the committee. In terms of domestic crime, Scalise put forward the Prosecutors Need to Prosecute Act, which would allow the public to see how many cases prosecutors are declining to prosecute, along with the number of criminals released onto the streets and the number of offenses committed by career criminals. On border security, Scalise put forward a bill called the Border Safety and Security Act, which would give the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, the power to turn away people crossing the border illegally in order to gain operational control of the border. Scalise is also proposing three abortion-related measures, two bills and a resolution. Among other things, they would prohibit federal funding for abortions, condemn attacks on pro-life facilities, and ensure that infants born alive after a failed abortion would receive the same legal protection and health care as a newborn. In addition to the ready-to-go bills, Scaley said House Republicans would also develop oversight plans to bring, quote, much-needed accountability to the Biden administration. General Motors provided a grant to a pro-transgender organization last year. The organization supplies kindergarten and elementary classrooms with children's books that support its ideology. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more. The donation was to the Rainbow Library Program of the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network, or GLSEN. Here's Michael Rady from GLSEN. We send LGBTQ plus affirming books to schools and libraries for free. The pro-transgender organization is known for lobbying school districts to allow boys who have undergone sex changes to play on girls' sports teams and use female restrooms. GM says it funds the Rainbow Library's efforts to provide supportive curriculum materials and book sets that are LGBT-centered. We put a major emphasis on books that center the voices of trans and non-binary people. GM's Social Impact Report says the Rainbow Library Program provides ongoing support and professional guidance for educators to create inclusive, supportive, and identity-safe classrooms. Megan Brock, a parents' rights advocate, has accused GLSEN of attempting to exploit their Rainbow Library Program to, in her words, covertly groom children and influence educational policy. She addresses the issue of school systems and parents having differing belief systems. Withholding information from parents, a parent is a long-established pattern of predatory grooming. And yet, the ACLU is arguing that teachers have a right to keep secrets with students from their parents. This is dangerous to students and parents and it needs to be stopped. Glisten has been accused of allegedly trying to add trans and non-binary gender theory into school policies and curriculum. The books in its program include I Am Jazz, about a boy who discovered that he was a girl from the age of two, and the sexually explicit Gender Queer, which contains depictions of sexual activities and descriptions of fantasies and experiments. Glisten has also created a trans action kit for students and teachers to engage in pro-LGBT activism. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, three New York City police officers were injured in a machete attack on New Year's Eve. They were providing security at the Times Square New Year festivities. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court releases his annual report. Top of his concerns from 2022, the personal security of the justices. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today.
Welcome back. Three NYPD officers are in stable condition after being attacked by a man with a machete on New Year's Eve. According to police, the assault was unprovoked and happened about two hours before midnight. It was near a screening site to enter Times Square where thousands of people gathered to ring in the New Year. Police say a 19-year-old man began swinging the machete at the officers without warning before one of the officers shot and wounded him. The NYPD and FBI are investigating the attack but have not provided a possible motive. New York City Mayor Eric Adams says one of the officers graduated from the police academy just days before. It just goes to show you if it's not the first day or it could be your last day, the actions that police officers must take every day uh, are life-threatening uh, situations. The three officers were removed to Bellevue Hospital where I am relieved to report that they are in stable condition. I would like to thank Assistant Directors of Nursing, Dion Bernadelle and Bruce Martin and all the staff here at Bellevue Hospital for their excellent care of our officers. Mayor Adams also praised the officers' professionalism in subduing the suspect while still maintaining security for the New Year's celebration. Thankfully, all three officers are expected to recover. An inmate's New Year's Eve escape plans were thwarted when police caught him jumping out of the window of a police car. The inmate was handcuffed and being transferred to another facility. Police say he kicked out a backseat door window of the car before attempting to jump out onto the freeway. The inmate was immediately restrained by an accompanying deputy. The son of actress Angela Bassett is issuing an apology for participating in a viral TikTok trend. It's the so-called celebrity death prank where people lie about celebrity deaths and record their family's reaction. In a now-deleted TikTok video, 16-year-old Slater Vance asked his parents if they heard about the death of actor Michael B. Jordan. Bassett was emotional after hearing the news. The video didn't show her reaction after learning it was fake. Slater Vance apologized for taking part in the trend, calling it disrespectful. I apologize to Michael B. Jordan's entire family, his extended family, and him directly as he is an idol of mine. And taking part in a trend like this is completely disrespectful. And I hope this can be a teaching lesson to anyone else who uses social media as a tool and a source of entertainment to to truly understand that your actions can have consequences that extend beyond you. Bassett and Jordan are co-stars in the Black Panther films. After a difficult 2022 at the Supreme Court, Chief Justice John Roberts said in an annual report that the personal security of judges needs to be a priority. In his role as Chief Justice of the United States, Roberts presides over the Supreme Court and oversees the federal judiciary. He said a judicial system cannot and should not live in fear. The report does not reference the unprecedented leak in May 2022 of the draft majority opinion, which overturned legalized nationwide abortion. The report also does not reference the protests at the homes of the conservative justices in Maryland and Virginia, nor the attacks on justices such as Brett Kavanaugh, who was the target of a foiled assassination attempt and of flash mob harassment in public outings by left-wing activists. The Illinois Supreme Court placed on hold portions of a controversial law known as the Safety Act. The law would eliminate cash bail for some crimes. The decision was made just hours before the law was supposed to be enacted. The court ruled that the cash bail measure would take power out of state judges' hands. 
judges filed an emergency motion to suspend the law pending its resolution. If the law went into effect as scheduled on January 1st, it would have applied unevenly across Illinois counties. Proponents of the law say cash bail results in the poor sitting in jail awaiting their day in court while the wealthy go free. However, local law enforcement officials have issued warnings about the cashless bail provision. Last year, the mayor of Orland Park, Illinois, told Fox News, quote, When I said that this is the most dangerous law I've ever seen, I believe that. A daring Ferris wheel rescue, over 60 people were trapped on the 400-foot high ride when one in Florida lost power on New Year's Eve. Orange County Fire and Rescue responded to the call for help when the wheel at Icon Park in Orlando lost power. The firefighters had to move the wheel manually to reach each pod and rescue the riders. In total, they rescued 62 trapped people from 20 Ferris wheel pods. There were no injuries or hospital visits. On its webpage, Icon Park advertises the wheel as an exhilarating ride with a unique view of the city. The ride costs about $30 per person. In 2015, just a few months after it first opened, the wheel experienced a technical malfunction trapping riders for several hours but it had been running smoothly since then. North Carolina State's radio voice for football and men's basketball was suspended indefinitely. The suspension followed an on-air comment about, quote, illegal aliens. Gary Hahn made the remark during a broadcast of the Duke's Mayo Bowl. North Carolina State was playing against the University of Maryland. Hahn was giving a score update for the El Paso-Texas Sun Bowl game, taking place on the same day when he said, quote, In the Sun Bowl and amongst all the illegal aliens down in El Paso, it's UCLA 14 and Pittsburgh 6. Han has served in his broadcasting roles at North Carolina State since 1991 and was named the North Carolina Sportscaster of the Year in 2011 and 2020. An armed attack broke out at the prison in the northern Mexican border city of Juarez. At least 14 people died. That's according to Mexican authorities. Among those who died in the attack were 10 security personnel and four inmates. 13 others were hurt and over 20 inmates escaped, according to a statement by the Chihuahua state prosecutor. It was not immediately clear who carried out the attack. According to witness reports, the attackers wore black outfits and were better armed than the police. Initial investigations found the attackers arrived at the prison in armored vehicles at around 7 a.m. local time. Minutes earlier, authorities had reported a nearby attack against municipal police. After a chase, four men were captured and a truck was seized. In a different part of the city, two more drivers died in an armed conflict later in the day. It's unclear whether the three incidents were related. And just ahead, a California dance instructor found a unique way to celebrate the new year. She brought 11 family members together to see an inspiring performance. A winter dive, a long distance run, people around the world mark the first day of 2023 in their own ways. We'll have the details soon when we return. Shen Yun Performing Arts is currently on its world tour. One California mother took a party of 11 to watch the performance. This is what the family of entrepreneurs said. Shireen Maynard's family watched Shen Yun Performing Arts on December 30th as a Christmas present. It's so inspiring and so breathtaking. At the same time as I'm watching, I just cannot believe not only the technique, the form, the unison that they have, but the spirit in it. Like I could just feel the spirit in it so strong. 
and that's that was so moving to me because obviously as a dance instructor trying to bring a group together and have them in unison like that and just seeing what this group has pulled off is amazing. They drove from the Northern California city of Winters to the Center for Performing Arts in San Jose. The mother of four, also a dance instructor, treated the entire family. This is our Christmas present. We brought all of our family here for their present to be able to come and see this inspiration because it's a lost art. But it's not lost because you guys are here and that's what was just so amazing. Shen Yun's mission is to revive 5,000 years of traditional culture. Maynard's family noticed that Shen Yun is more than just a performance. I believe that the dancers come across with purity and almost a holiness. You can tell that they are good inside and it comes out in their outward expression. The orchestra is beautiful. I had never, um, honestly, I'm kind of lost for words. There's so many things I can't, you just have to see it and feel it. And, but to actually be there and be like, this is a live orchestra. Like so many times my kids are even like, mom, like they're real, like they're right there. And you could just feel it. And then you're watching the dancers. And, and one of my sons, he was like, you're watching them and then you think, like it almost seems like it's not real, <laughs> but they're so good. It's so beautiful. The traditional folk dancing of the Chinese culture is a thing of beauty. It really is. It's so different. I haven't seen anything like it before. Shen Yun will be performing in San Francisco, Reno, Berkeley, Folsom, Fresno, and Modesto in January, and Sacramento in February. Entity News, California. Around the world, people ushered in the first day of 2023 in various ways. For example, the residents of Rome carried on the tradition of jumping into the Tiber River to celebrate the New Year. In the center of the Italian capital, four divers plunged off the Cavour Bridge, braving the harsh winter cold. Enthusiastic onlookers cheered for the courageous men, but not to worry, rescue boats were waiting alongside to pull them ashore. The annual Tiber diving event has been held on the first day of the new year since 1946. In the Netherlands, another cold water dive. Thousands ran towards the North Sea at the country's most famous dive site for the New Year's celebration. Temperatures on the first day of the New Year were about 50 degrees on the beach and 45 degrees in the water. Across the country, about 50,000 people joined the tradition at more than 140 spots. To the east, Berliners marked the New Year with another exercise. About 4,000 residents joined a 2.5-mile run on a warm winter weekend. The route started and ended at Berlin's landmark Brandenburg Gate. Participants came from all age groups, including even children and dogs. Everyone was given the same registration number, 2023. One participant called the event a joyful experience, saying 99% of the runners were laughing. And some New Year's magic, flight tracking site Flight Radar 24 shared how to turn back the clock. One of its tweets showed a flight taking off from Seoul, South Korea at midnight on January 1st, but landing in San Francisco on the afternoon of December 31st, 2022. Commenters remarked that time travel has finally come true. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.